Section 4 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. Section 4. Isaac Disraeli. 1766 to 1848. Among the writers whose education and whose tastes were the outcome of the classicism of the 18th century, yet whose literary life lapped over into the Victorian epoch, was Isaac Disraeli, born at Enfield in May 1766. Disraeli was of Jewish origin, his ancestors having fled from the Spanish persecutions of the fifteenth century to find a home in Venice, whence a younger branch migrated to England. At the time of his birth, his family had stood for generations among the foremost English Jews, his father having been made a citizen by special legislation. The boy, however, did not inherit the commercial spirit which had established his house. He was a lover of books and a dreamer of dreams, and so early developed literary tendencies that his frightened father sent him off to Amsterdam to school in the hope of curing proclivities so dangerous. Here he became familiar with the works of the encyclopedists and adopted the theories of Rousseau. On returning to England in his nineteenth year, he replied to his father's proposition that he should enter a commercial house at Bordeaux by a long poem in which he passionately inveighed against the commercial spirit, and avowed himself a student of philosophy and letters. His father's reluctant acquiescence was obtained at last through the good offices of the laureate Pai, to whom the youth had already dedicated his first book, A Defense of Poetry. At the outset of his career, he found himself received with consideration by the men whose acquaintance he most desired. Following the fashion of the day, and inspired by the books of anecdotes so successfully published by his friend Deuce, Disraeli, in 1791, produced anonymously a small volume entitled Curiosities of Literature, the copyright of which he magnanimously presented to his publisher. The extraordinary success of this book can be accounted for only by the curious taste of the time, which still reflected the more unworthy traditions of the Addisonian era. It was an age of clubs and tea-tables, of society scandal-mongering and fireside gossip, and the reading public welcomed a contribution whose refined dilettantism so well matched its own. The mysteries of Eleusis and the origin of Whigs received the same grave attention. This popularity induced Disraeli to buy back the copyright at a generous valuation. He enlarged the work to five volumes, which passed through twelve in his own lifetime, and still serves to illustrate a curious literary phase. Other compilations of similar nature met the same success. The Calamities of Authors, 
quarrels of authors, and literary recollections, but the amenities of literature, his last work, is the most purely literary in form, and affords perhaps the best index to Disraeli's abilities as a writer. The reader of today, however, is struck by the ephemeral nature of this criticism, which yet, by a curious literary experience, is keeping a place among the permanent productions of its age. The reader is everywhere impressed by the human sympathy, by the wide, if rather superficial, knowledge, and by innumerable felicities of expression and style, which betray the cultivated mind. To lovers of the curious the books still appeal, and they will continue to hold an honorable place among the bric-a-brac of literature. The spirit of curiosity which characterized the mind of Disraeli assumed its most dignified concrete form in the commentaries on the reign of Charles I. Disraeli had an artistic sense of the values in a historical picture, with a keen perception of the importance of side lights, and although the book is not a great contribution to the literature of history, yet it became popular, and in July 1832, earned for its author the degree of D.C.L. from Oxford. Disraeli's romances were tedious tales, but his hold upon the public was secure, and the vast amount of miscellaneous matter which he published always found a delighted audience. The Genius of Judaism, a philosophical inquiry into the historical significance of the permanence of the Jewish race, showed the author's psychic limitations. He designed a history of English literature, for which he had gathered much material, but increasing blindness forced him to abandon it. Much of Disraeli's popularity was unquestionably due to his qualities of heart. His nature was fine, he was an affectionate and devoted friend, and held an enviable position in the literary circles of the day. Campbell, Byron, Rogers, and Scott alike admired and loved him, while a host of lesser men eagerly sought his friendship. Although brought up in the Jewish faith, Disraeli affiliated early in life with the Church of England, in which his three sons and one daughter were baptized. He died in 1848, and was buried at Bradenham. Twenty years later, his daughter-in-law, the Countess of Beaconsfield, erected at Hugenden a monument to his memory. Illustration Old Black Letter Quarto Slightly reduced facsimile of title page of first edition of The Posies London, about 1572 Original, four and an eighth by six and three-eighth inches an example of title page, typography, and spelling a hundred years after the introduction of printing into England. The old English, Gothic, or black-letter type was being superseded by the modern Roman, and on this title page both forms were used. Reading, A Hundredth Sundry Flowers Bound Up in One Small Poesy gathered partly by translation in the fine outlandish gardens of Euripides, Ovid, Petrarch, 
Ariosto, and others, and partly by invention, out of our own fruitful orchards in England, yielding sundry favorite favors of tragical, comical, and moral discourses, both pleasant and profitable to the well-smelling noses of learned readers. Meritum Petare Grave, at London, imprinted for Richard Smith. Selection Poets, Philosophers, and Artists Made by Accident from Curiosities of Literature by Isaac Disraeli Accident has frequently occasioned the most eminent geniuses to display their powers. It was at Rome, says Gibbon, on the 15th of October, 1764, as I sat musing amidst the ruins of the capital, while the barefooted friars were singing vespers in the temple of Jupiter, that the idea of writing the decline and fall of the city first started to my mind. Father Malbranche, having completed his studies in philosophy and theology without any other intention than devoting himself to some religious order, little expected the celebrity his works acquired for him. Loitering in an idle hour in the shop of a bookseller and turning over a parcel of books, l'homme de Descartes fell into his hands. Having dipped into some parts, he read with such delight that the palpitations of his heart compelled him to lay the volume down. It was this circumstance that produced those profound contemplations which made him the Plato of his age. Cowley became a poet by accident. In his mother's apartment he found, when very young, Spencer's Fairy Queen, and by a continual study of poetry he became so enchanted of the muse that he grew irrecoverably a poet. Dr. Johnson informs us that Sir Joshua Reynolds had the first fondness of his art excited by the perusal of Richardson's treatise. Vaucanson displayed an uncommon genius for mechanics. His taste was first determined by an accident. When young, he frequently attended his mother to the residence of her confessor, and while she wept with repentance, he wept with weariness. In this state of disagreeable vacation, says Helvetius, he was struck with the uniform motion of the pendulum of the clock in the hall. His curiosity was roused. He approached the clock-case and studied its mechanism. What he could not discover he guessed at. He then projected a similar machine, and gradually his genius produced a clock. Encouraged by this first success, he proceeded in his various attempts, and the genius which thus could form a clock in time formed a fluting automaton. If Shakespeare's imprudence had not obliged him to quit his wool trade and his town, if he had not engaged with a company of actors, and at length, disgusted with being an indifferent performer, he had not turned author, the prudent wool-seller had never been the celebrated poet. Accident determined the taste of Moliere for the stage. His grandfather loved the theatre, and frequently carried him there. 
The young man lived in dissipation. The father, observing it, asked in anger if his son was to be made an actor. Would to God, replied the grandfather, he was as good an actor as Montrose. The words struck young Molière, who took a disgust to his tapestry trade, and it is to this circumstance France owes her greatest comic writer. Corneille loved. He made verses for his mistress, became a poet, composed Melite, and afterwards his other celebrated works. The discreet Corneille had remained a lawyer. Thus it is that the devotion of a mother, the death of Cromwell, deer stealing, the exclamation of an old man, and the beauty of a woman have given five illustrious characters to Europe. We owe the great discovery of Newton to a very trivial accident. When a student at Cambridge, he had retired during the time of the plague into the country. As he was reading under an apple tree, one of the fruit fell and struck him a smart blow on the head. When he observed the smallness of the apple, he was surprised at the force of the stroke. This led him to consider the accelerating motion of falling bodies, from whence he deduced the principle of gravity, and laid the foundation of his philosophy. Ignatius Loyola was a Spanish gentleman who was dangerously wounded at the siege of Pampeluna. Having heated his imagination by reading the lives of the saints, which were brought to him in his illness instead of a romance, he conceived a strong ambition to be the founder of a religious order, whence originated this celebrated society of the Jesuits. Rousseau found his eccentric powers first awakened by the advertisement of the singular annual subject which the Academy of Dijon proposed for that year, in which he wrote his celebrated declamation against the arts and sciences, a circumstance which determined his future literary efforts. La Fontaine, at the age of twenty-two, had not taken any profession or devoted himself to any pursuit. Having accidentally heard some verses of Malherbe, he felt a sudden impulse which directed his future life. He immediately bought a Malherbe, and was so exquisitely delighted with this poet that, after passing the nights in treasuring his verses in his memory, he would run in the daytime to the woods, where, concealing himself, he would recite his verses to the surrounding dryads. Flamsteed was an astronomer by accident. He was taken from school on account of his illness, when Sacrobosco's book, De Sfera, having been lent to him, he was so pleased with it that he immediately began a course of astronomic studies. Pennant's first propensity to natural history was the pleasure he received from an accidental perusal of Willoughby's work on birds. The same accident of finding on the table of his Professor Romer's History of Insects, of which he read more than he attended to the lecture, and having been refused the loan, gave such an instant turn to the mind of Bonnet, that he hastened to obtain a copy, but found many difficulties in procuring this costly work. 
Its possession gave an unalterable direction to his future life. This naturalist, indeed, lost the use of his sight by his devotion to the microscope. Dr. Franklin attributes the cast of his genius to a similar accident. I found a work of Defoe's entitled An Essay on Projects, from which perhaps I derived impressions that have since influenced some of the principal events of my life. I shall add the incident which occasioned Roger Ascham to write his schoolmaster, one of the most curious and useful treatises among our elder writers. At a dinner given by Sir William Cecil during the plague in 1563, at his apartments at Windsor, where the Queen had taken refuge, a number of ingenious men were invited. Secretary Cecil communicated the news of the morning, that several scholars at Eton had run away on account of their master's severity, which he condemned as a great error in the education of youth, Sir William Petra maintained the contrary. Severe in his own temper, he pleaded warmly in defense of hard flogging. Dr. Wooden, in softer tones, sided with the secretary. Sir John Mason, adopting no side, bantered both. Mr. Haddon seconded the hard-hearted Sir William Petra, and adduced as an evidence that the best schoolmaster then in England was the hardest flogger. Then was it that Roger Ascham indignantly exclaimed that if such a master had an able scholar, it was owing to the boy's genius and not the preceptor's rod. Secretary Cecil and others were pleased with Ascham's notions. Sir Richard Sackville was silent, but when Ascham after dinner went to the Queen to read one of the orations of Demosthenes, he took him aside and frankly told him that, though he had taken no part in the debate, he would not have been absent from that conversation for a great deal, that he knew to his cost the truth Ascham had supported for it was the perpetual flogging of such a schoolmaster that had given him an unconquerable aversion to study. And as he wished to remedy this defect in his own children, he earnestly exhorted Ascham to write his observations on so interesting a topic. Such was the circumstance which produced the admirable treatise of Roger Ascham. Selection The Martyrdom of Charles I from the Commentaries on the Reign of Charles I, by Isaac Disraeli. At Whitehall a repast had been prepared. The religious emotions of Charles had consecrated the sacrament, which he refused to mingle with human food. The bishop, whose mind was unequal to conceive the intrepid spirit of the king, dreading lest the magnanimous monarch overcome by the severity of the cold might faint on the scaffold prevailed on him to eat half a manchet of bread and taste some claret but the more consolatory refreshment of charles had been just imparted to him in that singular testimony from his son who had sent a carte blanche to save the life of his father at any price this was a thought on which his affections could dwell in face of the scaffold which he was now to ascend. 
Charles had arrived at Whitehall about ten o'clock, and was not led to the scaffold till past one. It was said that the scaffold was not completed. It might have been more truly said that the conspirators were not ready. There was a mystery in this delay. The fate of Charles I, to the very last moment, was in suspense. Fairfax, though at the time in the palace, inquired of Herbert how the king was, when the king was no more, and expressed his astonishment on hearing that the execution had just taken place. This extraordinary simplicity and abstraction from the present scene of affairs has been imputed to the general as an act of refined dissimulation. Yet this seems uncertain. The prince's carte blanche had been that morning confided to his hands, and he surely must have laid it before the grande of the army, as this new order of the rulers of England was called. Fairfax, whose personal feelings respecting the king were congenial with those his lady had so memorably evinced, labored to defer for a few days the terrible catastrophe, not without the hope of being able, by his own regiment and others in the army, to prevent the deed altogether. It is probable, inexplicable as it may seem to us, that the execution of Charles I really took place unknown to the general. Fairfax was not unaccustomed to discover that his colleagues first acted and afterwards trusted to his own discernment. Secret history has not revealed all that passed in those three awful hours. We know, however, that the warrant for the execution was not signed till within a few minutes before the king was led to the scaffold. In an apartment in the palace, Ireton and Harrison were in bed together, and Cromwell, with four colonels, assembled in it. Colonel Hunks refused to sign the warrant. Cromwell would have no further delay, reproaching the colonel as a peevish, cowardly fellow, and Colonel Axtell declared that he was ashamed for his friend Hunks, remonstrating with him that the ship is coming into the harbour, and now would he strike sail before we come to anchor. Cromwell stepped to a table and wrote what he had proposed to Hunks. Colonel Hacker, supplying his place, signed it, and with the ink hardly dry, carried the warrant in his hand and called for the king. At the fatal summons, Charles rose with alacrity. The king passed through the long gallery by a line of soldiers. Awe and sorrow seem now to have mingled in their countenances. Their barbarous commanders were intent on their own triumph, and no farther required the forced cry of justice and execution. Charles stepped out of an enlarged window of the banqueting-house, where a new opening levelled it with the scaffold. Charles came forward with the same indifference as he would have entered Whitehall on a masked night, as an intelligent observer described. The king looked toward St. James's and smiled. Curious eyes were watchful of his slightest motions, and the Commonwealth papers of the day expressed their surprise, perhaps their vexation, at the unaltered aspect and the firm step of the monarch. 
these mean spirits had flattered themselves that he who had been cradled in royalty, who had lived years in the fields of honour, and was now, they presumed, a recreant in imprisonment, the grand delinquent of England, as they called him, would start in horror at the block. This last triumph, at least, was not reserved for them. It was for the king. Charles, dauntless, strode the floor of death, to use Fuller's peculiar but expressive phraseology. He looked on the block with the axe lying upon it with attention. His only anxiety was that the block seemed not sufficiently raised, and that the edge of the axe might be turned by being swept by the flappings of cloaks, or blunted by the feet of some moving about the scaffold. Take care, they do not put me to pain. Take heed of the axe, take heed of the axe, exclaimed the king to a gentleman passing by. Hurt not the axe, that may hurt me. His continued anxiety concerning these circumstances proved that he felt not the terror of death, solely anxious to avoid the pain, for he had an idea of their cruelty. With that sedate thoughtfulness which was in all his actions, he only looked at the business of the hour. One circumstance Charles observed with a smile. They had a notion that the king would resist the executioner. On the suggestion of Hugh Peters, it is said, they had driven iron staples and ropes into the scaffold, that their victim, if necessary, might be bound down upon the block. The king's speech has many remarkable points, but certainly nothing so remarkable as the place where it was delivered. This was the first king's speech spoken from a scaffold. Time shall confirm, as history has demonstrated, his principle that they mistook the nature of government, for people are free under a government, not by being sharers in it, but by the due administration of the laws. It was for this, said Charles, that now I am come here. If I could have given way to an arbitrary sway, for to have all laws changed according to the power of the sword, I need not have come here, and therefore I tell you that I am the martyr of the people. End of section four.